this very seriously. They are, they are neglecting one another and therefore they are dishonoring the God whom they say that they serve. And so how not to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper and then how to celebrate the Supper. Let's first start with how not to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and really the first thing we should probably say uh, when it comes to the sacraments for most of us is like, what's the big deal? Like if we're being honest... When it comes to things like sacraments, for most of us, we don't really know what to do with it anyway. Even using that word sacrament, which is what the Lord's Supper is, doesn't mean a whole lot to us. That's not, that's not language that we commonly talk in, okay? And if you do, people look at you funny, okay? And typically, uh, we've gone one of two directions, alright? So for, uh, up until the Protestant Reformation, Right? There was a lot of mystery and magic that surrounded uh, the sacrament of the Lord's table. Right, The Catholic Church calls it the Mass. Um, and, and it's one of these things that actually the, the people don't participate in. It's just the priest. There's a lot of mystery and confusion surrounding that. It's kind of a dark, murky cloud. And then on the other side of that, kind of a hard reaction against that is, well, we don't really want to do that, so let's just not celebrate it much at all. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll be very basic, very minimal, maybe four times a year. Uh, and, and we don't want to swing to either side of that. Right. We want to be kind of in the middle of those two positions. But maybe the first thing we need to do is just ask the question, what is a sacrament? What exactly is the Lord's table? And there's two sacraments, actually, baptism and the Lord's supper. What are they? What is their place in the life of the church? The first thing we'll say is that they are sacred sacred rituals that Jesus gives to the church. Right? They're sacred rituals. It means they're a part of our regular worship. And that means they're done when we gather. Right? They belong to the church as a whole. And that means we don't do them in private. Right? It's, it's something that the church does. These sacraments are things that the church does when it gathers together. Right? It belongs to the church as a whole. And they are to be treated as an act of worship, right? Reverently, uh, joyfully, but reverently, because they are a response to God. They are worship. The next thing I would say about them is that they are promises in pictures. That's that's the phrase that I use in our uh, our new members class. They are promises in pictures. What that means is they are visible words. That's how the reformers talked about it. They show us, they physically show us the good news. So, in fact, if you look right here in our passage in 1126, Paul says that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. That in our eating and drinking, we're actually speaking the gospel, right? That we are proclaiming his death. They are visible words, They engage all five of our senses, touch, sight, sound, smell, taste. They engage our five senses with the good news. That's what they're for. God has given us these visible signs uh, that help us to experience the gospel with all of our senses. Right? So in this case... um, Right, baptism is a washing that symbolizes the new birth. Right? When we see someone washed in water... We are meant to think of the cleansing that comes from believing in Jesus. That's what that's for, right? We we hear the water pour out. Uh, if we're being baptized, we feel the water, 
right? It's the gospel in visible form. And then the Lord's Supper is a meal that is meant to remind us and symbolize uh, Jesus's death, right? We have the body and the blood and the bread and the juice. So they're sacred rituals, they're promises and pictures, and then finally they are means of grace. And here's what that means. Uh, it means that when we take them by faith, trusting in Jesus, uh, that the Holy Spirit uses them to strengthen and renew us. That they are part of the arsenal, so to speak, that the Holy God uses to strengthen and encourage His people. But with that said, they are not magic. Uh, the sacraments are not magic. Simply being baptized does not do anything to you. Taking the Lord's Supper does not magically do anything to you, right? They have to be received by faith. You have to believe in Jesus in order for the sacraments to have a gracious effect. They don't work magically. Uh, so being, a, being baptized or taking communion does not automatically make you a Christian. So then it might make a little bit more sense why Paul is so agitated that these people are abusing this crucial part of church life. What are they doing wrong? Well, primarily, it looks like they're splitting up into cliques or factions. And it looks like they're splitting up in, into cliques along social and economic lines. Right? So those who have are bringing their own food and they're going ahead and getting started eating while those who have not maybe get there later after they get off work, something like that. Uh, but there's no food left for them. So the haves are already drunk and the have-nots are going hungry. Right? So they are, they are dividing up. Look at, uh, look at verse 18. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, this is kind of an aside, but it's interesting. Paul says that there will always be divisions in the church. In fact, that God, he says that they must be there, that these factions must be there to reveal who is true. Isn't that interesting? We work for the peace and purity and unity of the church. That's a, that's a laudable goal. We don't want there to be schisms in the church. And yet, until the return of Jesus, God has ordained that there will be. That there will be, as the old hymn says, false sons in her pale. That alongside the true sons and daughters of God, there will be false sons and daughters. And their whole purpose and presence in the church is that these would be revealed. Right? In other words, that the bad guys would help us know who the good guys really are. And both exist alongside in the church. Alright? Uh, that's just an aside that Paul makes. He goes on. He says, therefore, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Basically, yeah, you're eating. You're eating a meal, alright. But it's not a worship meal. It's not the Lord's supper. You're having dinner, but it's not the Lord's dinner. Right? Because some of you go on and start eating without the others. By the time they get there, you're drunk and they're hungry. What in the world are you doing? Don't you have houses to eat meals in? Right? These people are neglecting and abusing one another. 
They are taking advantage of this opportunity to abuse uh, their brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are indulging themselves and rejecting, uh, neglecting others. Which, if you think about it, is the exact opposite of the character and mission of Jesus. Right? Jesus never indulged himself. And he never neglected others. So you see how that's the exact opposite of what they're doing. Right? In Corinth, they're indulged, some are indulging themselves and are, and are neglecting others in doing that. It is the complete opposite of what Jesus did. And the complete opposite of what Jesus would have his people do. I don't, I can't think of any better illustration of this than on the actual night of uh, the Last Supper. Do you remember what Jesus does before he serves the meal? He washes his disciples' feet. Right now, that would have been unheard of, and we see this in John 13. That would have been unheard of for the host. The host of the meal was not the low slave that washed the feet. But here Jesus is uh, stepping aside from his role as the host, or even really in his role as the host, to act as the lowest servant. He disrobes, wraps himself with a towel, and goes and washes these dirty, crusty feet of these Galilean fishermen. That's the character of Jesus. And he does this before he hosts the meal. What greater display of humility and sacrifice. And what's remarkable is that even at dinner, the disciples are arguing, okay, which one of us is going to be greater in the kingdom? Right, once uh, once Jesus does his thing, right, who's going to be the most important of us? And you can just imagine that like Jesus is over in the corner doing this. Were you, God, were you here with me? Have you been two years? We've been this, doing this three years? We've been together? Right? And they're still talking about this. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what he demonstrated in the foot washing, he verbally said with his words, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The foot washing is the prelude to the supper, which is the prelude to the cross. The greatest act of humility and self-sacrifice. If anyone deserved better, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus fully understood his servant role. So what does that mean for us as we come to the table? It means first that this is a table for servants. And this is a fellowship of servants. The question uh, that comes to, with belonging to the church is not, am I a servant? But where do I serve? Or how can I serve? If you belong to Jesus, you are in the role of servant. And when we come to the table, there is only one master. And the table belongs to him. It's his table. And even he hosts the table as the one who is the suffering servant. So even the master of the table is a servant. How much more those of us who come to the table and gladly receive from it. 
And then the second goes along with that. If this is a table for servants, that means it is a table for equal fellowship. There should not be any factions. We know that there are, but there should not be any cliques here. Whatever position you may hold in society, however much money you may have in the bank, all of that is irrelevant when it comes to life in the church. Your position and rank and uh, net worth, they don't matter when we come to the table. They don't matter before the king of the universe. There are no ranks. There are no positions. There are simply different gifts and different areas of service. There is no division along lines in the life of the church. This is a table for servants and it is a table of equal fellowship. So if that is how not to celebrate with self-indulgence and division and arrogance... How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What's the the right way to go about this? And in response to their behavior, Paul says this in verse 23. He rehearses for them what Jesus did. He rehearses for us what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, just a little bit of background to what Jesus and his friends are doing. This was the Passover meal. And in case you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, this meal dates all the way back to the book of Exodus, when God rescues his people, Israel, from Egypt. Okay, so roughly about 14, 1500 years, I think I'm right, before Jesus. Okay, God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he did so by means of what's called the Passover. And so God commands his people, everybody would take a lamb, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. They'd sacrifice the lamb and they would paint its blood on the door of their house. And then the lamb, along with some bread and herbs and wine, would be part of a meal that they ate together. It was a whole religious ritual that they were to celebrate every year. And that blood secured them from God's wrath. Right As God's judgment came upon Egypt, it says that he would look on the blood. He would look on the blood and he would pass over that house. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is celebrating that meal of remembering God's saving grace. He's celebrating that meal with his friends. But he changes the ritual. He mixes it up. When it comes time to eat the bread, Jesus gives thanks as uh, the leader would have done. And as his disciples eat it, he says something strange. He says, this is my body, which is for you. He places himself in the role of the sacrifice. He identifies himself with the broken bread. Now, we don't believe that the bread actually becomes Jesus's body because it would not have made sense for Jesus to say that while he's standing in front of or sitting in front of them breaking the bread. 
right? So we don't believe that the elements actually become Jesus. But he's, he is saying that his body will be given over for them. His body is, his body takes the place of their bodies. And then after the supper is over, when it comes time for the last cup, which would have been a common cup passed around. Anybody want to go for that nowadays, right? Uh, it would have been a little bit bigger than the shot glass we use, right? Uh, as he gives thanks, he says, this cup is the blood, my blood, of the new covenant. What's he talking about? Well, so back in Exodus, when Moses and the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai, you may have heard of that, where they receive the Ten Commandments, they hear God's law, and all the people say, yep, we agree. We want to be your people, we'll do everything you tell us to do. Moses takes blood from a sacrifice, and he actually pours it on the people, he sprinkles it on the people, and says, behold, the blood of the covenant, right? He, the blood ratifies the covenant that they've agreed to. Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you. That's in Exodus 24. Now, if you're not familiar with the rest of the story, then you need to know that they break that covenant often and much. In fact, Moses goes up the mountain after that moment, and as almost as soon as he's gone, the people break the covenant, Right? 900 years of covenant breaking later, a prophet named Jeremiah comes along. And he brings a message from God that says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. 900 years of covenant breaking later, God says through Jeremiah, I'm bringing a new covenant because you keep breaking the old one. 600 years after Jeremiah, Jesus shows up and says, that day is finally here. This day has come. The new covenant is here. Mine is the blood of the covenant, right? Just as Moses took the blood from a sacrifice and sprinkled it on the people. So now Jesus says, my blood is the new covenant. Those who drink it are covered. Those who drink it are safe from God's judgment. And it's interesting, the lamb that would have been on the table in front of Jesus and the disciples, the lamb isn't even mentioned. Because the true lamb is not on the table. He's the one hosting the feast. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is going to be sacrificed the next day, he is going to give his life as a, ram- as a ransom for many. And then Jesus says this, do this often in remembrance of me. 
So that means that when we come together around this table, what we're doing is we're celebrating what Jesus has done. Right? In hearing Jesus' words, in eating bread and drinking juice, we remember what Jesus has done for us. Uh, think Thanksgiving, right? We have a meal in our culture that we use as kind of an opportunity to gather and say thanks, to remember our history. Same deal, okay? Jesus says that when we come together, we remember him, we celebrate what he has done. So, what does this mean for us? Two more applications. How do we come to the table? First, we come soberly and thoughtfully. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Let's talk about that for a minute. When Paul says unworthy manner, he does not mean that you have to be sinless to come to the table. He does not even mean that you must be without doubts when you come to the table. Think about what an unworthy manner would have meant in this situation. The Corinthians were coming to the table in an unworthy manner because they were treating it flippantly. They were treating it like it was any old thing. We're just here to eat and have a good time and who cares if everybody gets some. Right? That's an unworthy manner. So to come to the table in an unworthy manner doesn't, doesn't mean that if you're wrestling with your sin this morning and you just, I, I don't know, I'm struggling with my assurance, does God really love me? Come to the table. If you are in Jesus, come to the table, that's what it's for. To, be, to do it in an unworthy manner is to treat it flippantly and lightly. So we come soberly. Paul says a person needs to examine himself. That's why we withhold the, the, the bread and the juice from our kids if they haven't professed faith because we don't believe that they yet can examine themselves. Right? We ought to be able to look inwardly and say, how is my soul before the Lord? Is there any hidden area of sin in my life that I need to deal with? Paul says we need to examine ourselves. And he says we need to discern the body. There's a, there's a double meaning there, right? Yes, discern the body of the Lord Jesus on the table. We need to understand what Jesus has done. But also discern the body of Jesus around us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be able to know where they are. How are we neglecting them? Are we sinning against them? We need to discern the body of the Lord. So we come soberly, we come thoughtfully. We need to be able to examine ourselves. And to do otherwise, Paul says, is to invite judgment. If we come flippantly, if we come arrogantly or indulgently, Paul says that some in Corinth were experiencing weakness, sickness, and even death because, how they, because of how they were treating others within the church and how they were treating this table. Now, the good news is, he goes on to say that if, uh, if we discerned ourselves, we would not be judged, but that if we are, he, he distinguishes between judgment and condemnation. He says that even if you're facing judgment at the table, it is a discipline, right? That you are, that you are not being condemned with the world, but you are being disciplined so that you can repent. Even that is a sign of repentance. So we come soberly, and thoughtfully, we don't, we don't come cavalierly to the table saying, I got this, right? 
We come humbly saying, no, Jesus has got me. That's how we come to the table. And then finally, and I close with this. Yes, we come soberly and thoughtfully, but we also come gladly and boldly. For those who see Jesus, for those who know their need of Jesus, this table is not one of judgment, but one of mercy. We come here again and we taste His goodness. We, we, we hear it in the breaking of the bread. We taste it in the drinking of the cup. And so as we approach the table now, I invite you to come. If you are in Jesus, come to the table. Jesus is the host. Not me, not the elders of Grace Fellowship, not the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus is the host of this table. And He welcomes sinners saved by grace to come and eat with Him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank You for the beauty of the table that points us to the beauty of the cross, that not only have You given us Your Word, but that You have also given us a Word we can touch, a Word we can taste, a Word we can delight in. Holy God, as we hear Your words, we pray, Lord, that You would take this common bread and common juice and set it apart for that divine and mysterious purpose, that, that means of grace, that we would be strengthened and nourished and encouraged. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We invite our elders to come forward. And as they're coming up, I want to read for you the words that I, I just read. Uh, that on the night uh, when Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And having given thanks, He gave it to His disciples and He said, Take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Just as uh, Paul says in this passage, he says, wait for one another. So we're going to wait for one another. As we receive the elements, we'll take them all together. This is the body, this is the blood, broken and poured out for all of us in this communion, we share in His love. This is the body, this is the blood, I will remember everything, Lord, that you've done for me, I won't 
don't take for granted the sacrifice that sets me free. We hunger and thirst for your love. Come fill us today. This is the body. This is the blood broken and poured out for all of us in this communion we share in his love this is the body This is the blood. The body of the Lord Jesus given for you that you may be freed from sin. Take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. This is the blood 
the blood of Jesus given as a ransom for many. For those who have broken covenant, Jesus keeps it. Take and drink. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the sacrament. We thank you for this means of grace. God, we pray that we would be a church that embodies the communion uh, that we've just partaken of. That we would, of course, be one with Jesus. And in that oneness, in that unity, uh, be one with one another. Would you give us the grace to make that happen? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's enter into a time of giving as a response to what God has given to us. I'll stand. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, now receive God's blessing. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.